Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. I'm pleased today to introduce Mary Bueller. I'm so excited to have her on the show because Mary represents a very important uh, segment of our culture who we don't really hear a lot from uh, often. Uh, Mary Bueller is uh, living now in West Palm Beach, Florida, but she's not from West Palm Beach. Uh, she hails from a different part of the country, but I'll let her explain that to you. Mary Bueller, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Well, thank you, Jenna. It's great to be here in my apartment overlooking the intercoastal waterways. It's a very a beautiful view. Tell us a little I, bit about where you were born and where, what neighborhood you grew up in, that sort of thing. Okay. I was born uh, in a house. We, everybody was born in homes back then. Um, we didn't go to the hospital. Uh, my mother didn't, rather. And uh, I was born on the, the top floor of a one-family house uh, at 314 Warren Street on March 25th, 1933. Mm-hmm. And um, I was the third child, actually the fourth. My mother lost my uh, my sister, who was the, her firstborn. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I had two older brothers who happened to be in the room with me in their cribs, and the doctor put the uh, sheets over their their beds. It was a large room, so mm-hmm. this is where I was birthed. <laughs> and um, anyways, uh, when uh, she asked the doctor what time it was when I was born, he said 12 o'clock, and she said, oh, she says, well, that means it's the uh, Feast of the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and that's why I am called Mary. Uh, I was going to be Irene otherwise, which they called my sister, who passed away in five days, and uh, she weighed five and a half pounds today. That would be unheard of, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I I miss that sister my whole life because Mm I wound up with four brothers and uh, two older and two younger, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, not to have a sister is... um, pretty devastating, especially back in those days. I call it the days of ignorance and innocence, (laughs) because we weren't told very much about anything. Uh, My mother was English, and she came from Boston, and and she was very, I I don't want to say prudish, because that's what my father called her, but, um, you know, she just kept everything in, and uh, including, you know, the days when I got my period, and I was 13, and I I screamed, and, and, and she came rushing to the bathroom, and I showed her my pants, and she said, do you know about it? And I, you know, that's the kind of <laughs> atmosphere I grew up in. I mean, that's uh-huh. the way it was back in 1930s. By then it was, uh, you know, 10 years later. Uh-huh. So. And, and of course, we, the only entertainment we had back then was the radio. And hadn't, TV hadn't come about yet. And I had to, she handed me um, a modus. Modus was mm-hmm. the, the pad of the day. Mm-hmm. And with no pins. And uh, handed it into the door with two fingers. And, and uh, she said, here, and I said, well, I guess I put it down there, you know. And <laughs> I walked out of the bathroom. And this is a scene that stayed with me my whole life. And uh, I walked into the living room, you know, with trying to hold on to this thing. Uh, you can just picture oh, it. And um, sat down in the throat. And, of course, they were all, their eyes were on the radio. Uh, for some reason, <laughs> they thought they could see people. But um, that's the way we, we just sat there and mm-hmm. listened to, uh, I guess it was a Saturday night, certain shows, you know, uh, that we listened to on Saturday night mm-hmm. and Sunday night. And um, so that was my beginnings. Well, then I went to St. Paul's School. Well, in the interim, we went moved to Long Island, Islip, Long Island, the Islips, and um, my father worked for his brother, who was, uh, he had a, an ice business, because uh, uh, my father drove an ice truck. We didn't have central heating, mm-hmm. so my dear poor mother uh, was suffering from uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. So, back to Brooklyn we go, and uh, we live in, in the old neighborhood, but we didn't go back to Warren Street, we went to Baltic Street, which was around the corner. Mm-hmm. And eventually we moved back into Grandma's uh, house, 
uh, on Lawrence Street, and that's where I actually grew up in. And uh, Was your dad Italian? Oh, my dad was Italian. My maiden name was Tersolino. My dad worked so hard, uh, he died at 64. Oh, my uh, gosh, that's young. We oh yeah by today's standards yes and uh, mm-hmm. but he must have they figured he must have had uh, scarlet fever as a child mm-hmm. because a lot of um, people had it back then as to, they didn't diagnose it they didn't know what it was mm-hmm. so um, he had an enlarged heart mm-hmm. and that's what he died of oh. um, you know heart problems. Mm-hmm. Did his Italian background have an influence on you, that culture? Oh, yeah, because my grandmother um, lived right uh, in the same house with us, but mm-hmm. downstairs mm-hmm. Uh, in the basement. She owned the two houses, 314 and 316 on Warren Street. Mm-hmm. And how she acquired them was that my grandfather was a big gambler, and uh, they just uh, they played cards for money in different homes back then. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he won a bunch of money, <clears throat> and my grandmother grabbed it, and... And uh, she bought these two houses on Warren <laughs> Street. I don't know where they were living before that, but, you know, that was the story I got. You know? Very shrewd. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. She she didn't speak English, but uh, she knew what she was doing. Mm-hmm. My father was a longshoreman because we lived uh, close to the docks in Brooklyn. Uh, later on, he became a tractor-trailer driver, which wasn't a simple thing either. And uh, so he worked hard. When that man walked up the street, you know, after a day's work, he looked so tired. And, mm-hmm. and he, he was probably only in his 40s when I remember him like mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. But you know what? He was the life of the party. Mm-hmm. Whenever the family got together, he played the accordion and he sang. And, and I always sang with him. He always had me as his singing partner. <laughs> and so I knew all the old Irish songs because he loved all the Irish songs. And, uh, you know, I sang along with him and, and everybody loved him for that. How did your parents so, meet? Well, uh, the story I got is that they worked for the A&P, and at the time, I guess they boxed, the A&P boxed their macaroni, uh-huh. and it must have been an assembly line, or I, I just pictured them in rows, you know, uh-huh. because my mother said, first thing she knows, she's doing her job, you know, very efficiently, and, and you know, not looking one side or the other, and someone hits her in the head with a macaroni. <laughs> and she <laughs> turns slightly, you know, not all the way, you know, and... Uh, and I can just picture her doing this, you know, as my dad, of course, you know, he's uh, funny. Mm-hmm. And um, and then she got hit again, you know, before you know it. Well, that was the beginning, right? And I guess they got together somehow along the line <laughs> after that. And uh, I don't know the particulars, you know, but they were married in October. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know what year. And... Um, and then, of course, my grandmother, who was Catholic, you know, decided that they were going to get married again in the church because they weren't really married, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my mother mm-hmm. had converted to Catholicism when mm-hmm. she was 16. She had been raised Protestant mm-hmm. and um, by these two old maid aunts. Can you imagine this? I feel that I was brought up in ignorance. Well, my poor mother, oh. she said she was about 10 years old and she was walking with the, one of the aunts along the street. And she said to her, she says, why is that woman got such a big belly coming towards them. Now, she's 10 years old, and her answer was a slap across the back, and she almost fell over from it, you know, and no no words were spoken. My mother wanted to know why the woman was pregnant, mm-hmm. and she had no clue. Oh, wow. So, and, you know, they didn't send her to normal school. They sent her to domestic school where she would learn sewing and uh, cooking and all those things, you know. Mm-hmm. So my mother never learned how to read or write. Uh-huh. Yeah, although well, she is, poor thing. So yeah. growing up in that environment, Mary, what sort of goals and dreams did you have for yourself? What did you think your life was going to be like? Well, you know, back in those days, and then, of course, we had the World War II came along mm-hmm. when I was eight years mm-hmm. old, and I wanted to marry a butcher because uh, at th- those days you got rations for, uh, mm-hmm. for according to the size of your family. You know, you, you had these rations. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything was for the war effort, and, uh, and you had to live through that to actually realize the impact it had on the people back home. Yeah, I wanted to marry a butcher because then I could get all the meat I wanted, you know? <laughs> so uh, and I had it in my head when I was about 13. So getting so, married was a goal, r- straight out. Getting married, oh, yeah. 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 Every, every woman's mind, right. you know? Right. It was such so competitive, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in that respect. Uh, a lot of people got married during World War II because the men were going away and, and, 
and they had impromptu uh, weddings. And but when my uh, husband was in the Korean War, of course, mm-hmm. you know, right after they didn't call it a war, they called it a police action. But my dad, the little money that we had, he and my uncle, we always lived next door to each other because when Grandma died, we acquired uh, 316 Warren Street, and my uncle 314. And um, we always lived next door to each other. And they acquired a piece of land out in um, Long Island in uh, Sound Beach. And that was in 1940, mm-hmm. of course. And, uh, well, the war came along, and everything was for the war effort, so they couldn't build. So he brought us out by truck, because we didn't have a car. Two families <laughs> in the back of a truck, a huge um, hauling truck. Mm-hmm. And um, we were dumped out in Sound Beach for the summer. And the boys had hit crew cuts before. They, all the boys had crew cuts before we went. And then we rented uh, bungalows because mm-hmm. electricity hadn't been brought into Sound Beach yet. Mm-hmm. And um, we had uh, uh, kerosene lamps. We had kerosene mm-hmm. stoves mm-hmm. with flames up a foot high. All the pots were black as a result of it. <laughs> and uh, we also had outhouses and rain barrels, barrels mm-hmm. that had we would put a uh, window screen over the top. And that was the water we used for washing and cleaning up and what have uh-huh. you, you know. Uh-huh. It's so. just so hard for someone to uh, my age or even younger to imagine that. As oh, you said, we, unless yeah. you live through it, you really yeah, you yeah. Don't, know. don't know. My uh, brother-in-law told his uh, grandsons that, and they said, oh, you got to be kidding, <laughs> you know, because they have so much. When I look at how much the kids get today, and before we went out to the country, uh, we called it, we would go to the thrift shops on Smith Street, mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, and we... And we had, we had a lot of them then because no one had any money back then. Our neighborhood was strictly Irish and Italian. Mm-hmm. And you lived on your block. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where we grew up. And we went to St. Paul's School. And the charity nuns are really the ones that raised us, mm-hmm. told us what to do, how to do it, you know, and everything. And your parents more or less left it up to them. And if you got, they got a note had sent home from school, you didn't only get beat up by the nun, you got beat up by your parents. Oh, my gosh. But of course, I was, the, that's what the boys went through, most of them. This one boy, I don't know what the heck he did, uh, James Randazzo, his name was. The nun took his head and smashed it up against the wall. He had blood coming down the side of his head, you know. And I was so frightened that I never would, never did anything bad. I, I was so good because I was afraid. Gosh, and to think that they, she got away with that. People and then did. besides that, he was sent to the principal's office. Uh, Sister Nolene, who was her name, uh-huh. and, um, you know, and he was reprimanded by her. I suppose they, they put a Band-Aid on his head and sent him oh home. Oh, my gosh. And I don't know what his parents did about it, but you know what? they would do today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you said people didn't have money, but did you know that you didn't have money because No. Whatever? Right. So no, so, so it no, probably no. wasn't a bad life, right? No, it wasn't. No, because uh you know, and it was a big deal when the Tursolino was <laughs> leaving Warren Street cuz everybody <laughs> knew everybody on the block, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> you mm-hmm. you had women hanging out their windows on the second floor. They'd watch the kids playing in the street. Mm-hmm. Then nobody had a car, so mm-hmm. the streets were open for the kids to play stickball and go skating and uh, we did jump rope. I mean, we did all those things in the street mm-hmm. uh, on the stoops. We were stoop people. <laughs> stoop mm-hmm. people. We, we played jacks and my girlfriend and I, um, and she had three brothers, I had four brothers, so we, we consider ourselves today, she lives in California now, and we consider ourselves sisters because we grew up in the same house together, uh-huh. you know. Do you still talk we, to her? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. good. Yeah, she got married the year after me. She married a sailor, and uh, she traveled around the world with him and had her family that way, and and wound up in the San Francisco area. We don't get in contact that much, but when we do, we always have our beginnings mm-hmm. uh, to share, you know, mm-hmm. we were Warren Street people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did you go to college? That wasn't jump? even considered. No, not an option. No, I, I was very bright in grammar school in St. Paul's, mm-hmm. and the nuns wanted me to go, and they chose my high school. They uh-huh. chose huh. Bayridge High, uh-huh. which was an hour uh-huh. ride on a subway and a bus mm-hmm. from my I, from where I was downtown, and I did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hated every day of it. Me and Geraldine Macaro, you know, we trudged out to Bayridge High, which was an all-girls school. No wonder the nuns picked it, right? <laughs> an all-girls school. And um, I didn't do well out there. Mm-hmm. I was out of my atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I uh, didn't feel comfortable there. 
but you know, you just did as you you were told. Mm-hmm. But you, you worked, mean, right? You you, you had you oh worked. after high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, I studied I, I studied to be a secretary. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I struggled with the stenography and typing. Mm-hmm. I was never good at it, but yet I struggled with it. I learned the Pittman steno, and I was actually afraid to go to into New York to get a job as a secretary. Or so when they came to the school and asked if anybody wanted to learn and I on an IBM machine in the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. Raise your hand. My hand went up first. Uh-huh. I figured, well, I'll be sitting on a machine. I wouldn't have to talk to anybody. You know, I was very shy. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, very shy. With four brothers, they were probably quite boisterous. So I'm not well, surprised. Well, you know, you're not close with a brother. Yeah. I was close. The one brother that I was close with, uh, he adored me. My brother Jack, who was three years older than me, he lives in out in Arizona now, mm-hmm. and I had three living brothers, and I have no contact with them. Oh. See, it's, I know it wouldn't have been that way had my sister Irene lived. There would have been six years between us. But now my, my brothers were all in our 80s. My oldest brother, Bill, is um, 86. Jack would be 85. Mm-hmm. And I have a younger brother, Bobby, who would be four years younger, four or five years younger. But the one brother that I know I would have stayed close with was killed very young at 16 mm-hmm. uh, in an accident, mm-hmm. car accident, and in Sound Beach uh, on a weekend in April. And I think that was the first time that I ever realized life could be so devastating and so horrible because I was 22 at the time. Charlie uh, was still in the service, and it was just uh, I was just knocked out with that. I think I cried for five years, and after a while at work, uh, I would sit at my machine and cry, and I was mm-hmm. called into the office by one of the higher-ups there. It made the New York papers. It oh. made, uh, yeah, I was in the Daily News, you know, the accident, mm-hmm. because just so horrible. It was a convertible, and they had oh. five boys in it, and he was the only one killed. Oh. It turned over. Oh, my It turned goodness. over. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So it was a very devastating shock to, my, to me. Uh, nobody thought to get me any help, so I had to deal with it myself. I think that's why I had three children a year apart when I got married, mm-hmm. because I said to God, and I was very religious back then, uh, I said, please send me, when I got married, I got married in 1956, my brother was killed in 55, and of course my mother's heart wasn't and I had to do all my wedding plans myself and mm-hmm. arrange it all. And uh, and Mom was just knocked out from this, you know. Mm-hmm. And But she went along day in and day out. And, you know, and she dealt with it. And, um, and so did I. And I had to be strong for her. But uh, with Sonny, his name was Sonny, but his real name was Philip, he would say to me, uh, Penny for your thought. We were very close. You know, mm-hmm. I was like his mother. And, you know, actually the, the family kind of fell apart. My brother, who was a year older than him, uh, he was only 17. And um, I kind of, we kind of like ignored him. And he had a girlfriend at the time and who he married later on, you know. So she remembers all that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, she kind of holds it against us, you know, that we didn't consider his feelings. And, and yeah. I'm sorry that I didn't either, you know. But, but when you're wrapped up in something like that and total depression... Thinking back on it, that's what I was into. First time I realized that life could be so cruel and wondering how you can go on after such a thing. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How did you meet Charlie? Sound Beach. Sound uh, Beach, okay. I, Sound Beach, when my, uh, we eventually, when the war was over in 1946, my father and my uncle got together and, uh, and they built bungalows, because um, being uh, Italian, they did the cement work foundations mm-hmm. uh, for each house, and we lived next door to each other on uh, Westbury Drive in Sound Beach. And then uh, what they did was, because there were barracks, we had barracks in the United States for our, our soldiers, and they were tearing them down now because they weren't needed. Mm-hmm. I think it was on Northern Boulevard somewhere where they said, if you tear it down, you can take the lumber. So that's what mm-hmm. they did. And from working on the docks, my um, uncle and my father got these packing crates and they used that and they used whatever they would they could get their hands on because even after the war, they were still rationing. They were still, everything was hard to come by. Mm-hmm. So that's what they did. Mm-hmm. And they built these bungalows by hand and with um, the father and the, the the sons were old enough, you know, to pitch in. Mm-hmm. I would, he, he was over on Northern Boulevard there, and my job was to take the nails out of the wood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you had a job. <laughs> we all had jobs, yep. you know. Yep. We were all part of this effort, you know, to get the family out to the country in uh-huh. the summer. 
Uh-huh. You know, and, we've, and, we've, and, and, and how and where was your future husband in this scenario? Where's all Charlie? right, we'll get back to Charlie again. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met Charlie on the beach in Sound Beach when we were thirteen. The summer we were thirteen, mm-hmm. and uh, I had no sister, so I brought this girlfriend of mine from Brooklyn out with me, and we're walking along the edge of the water, and um, we looked back uh, by the hill because we were on the North Shore, so we had a hundred feet drop. Mm-hmm. down to the beach, mm-hmm. and uh, we looked back there, and there was Charlie, my blonde Adonis, I call him. He, he was so good-looking, you know, that uh, Eileen and I looked at him, you know, and when we turned down, uh, we looked down at the sand, you know, and then kept on walking, and they said, what do you think of him? So uh, that's how I met Charlie, my first glimpse of him. We just, you know, hung out, hung around each other, right. and uh, you know, uh, on the beach. And, um, and then later on, when uh, he got his license, which he forged uh, to get it a year <laughs> earlier. He lived in Queens and I lived in Brooklyn. We never would have met if, if we both didn't have bungalows in Sound Beach. Hmm. And um, his parents actually came on the boat from Germany. Mm-hmm. And he was born in New York City, and then they moved to Hollis, Queens. Mm-hmm. And anyway, we got together, and then he would come uh, into the city uh, uh, when he got his license, and he got a bar, the father's car, I guess, and he'd come in, and, and we'd go out. I was his girl. He was my guy. So, and then, of course, he was drafted into the Korean War in 1953, and he was gone for two years. Mm-hmm. So here I was, uh, 19, and, you know, we had no commitment, but I, I felt I was going to wait for him. So, and did he expect you to wait for him? He did. All right. He did. And then he but, came back? Uh, well, the, the thing of it was, I was working the IBM machine, right. and it was a very boring job for me. Working that machine all day long, you know, and trying to prove at the end of the day, which I never did, it was grade four, and I went down two grades to get away from the machine, and uh, I went into uh, filing. And, and I this was at the Federal Reserve? The Federal Reserve okay. Bank in New York, mm-hmm. and um, it was it was a nice place to work. Across the street was Schraff's. Occasionally, mm-hmm. a bunch of the girls and I went over to Schraff's and had lunch. We mm-hmm. would have watercress sandwiches on toasted cheese bread. Mm-hmm. That was what we ordered because the leader of the pack of, of four or five of us—that's <laughs> what Janet wanted. So that's what we all had, you know. <laughs> she decided for all of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How foolish, you know. Uh, but I realized later on uh, that I was not a follower. So, you know, I, I didn't like the idea of some, I mean, some girls, they sucked up to her, you know, because <laughs> Janet had been a model. She was very pretty, you mm-hmm. know. But we, uh, she made sure that we all stayed together because she had her group. <laughs> when they had uh, Christmas parties at the Waldorf Astoria, for instance, you know, we all stuck together and had a table, you know. She mm-hmm. made sure she had her people around her. So when Charlie came back, I was 22 when he came back, and uh, we got engaged, and, and then we, we were married the following year, May 5th, 1956. And I had three kids in, in a row, a oh. year apart. I think, I, think I, I mentioned that I almost had a nervous breakdown with the second one. No, you, you know, didn't. <clears throat> I didn't. I no. guess I told somebody else that. But he was colic for six months oh. and just screamed the whole day long. And, and the doctors really didn't have any anything, no gas drops or anything like that to alleviate his pain. And, and so I was stuck with this screaming um, thing, I called it. You know, I was just so, after a while, uh, I had Charlie, who was a nice little baby, um, and I thought all little babies would be like him, but when Stephen came into the world, you know, he almost uh, broke me down. Mm-hmm. And and then I found out I'm pregnant along the way, and and I just I couldn't bear it. I said I can't I can't deal with two of these, you know. Mm-hmm. And Charlie would go out in the morning. He made sixty five dollars a week, uh, which your rent mm-hmm. was sixty five dollars a month, so you made sixty five dollars a week. You had to get another job. Mm-hmm. So he left at eight o'clock in the morning for one job and came home at twelve o'clock at night from the other. And so he wasn't around to help me. I wanted to better myself and move to a better neighborhood, which, looking back on it now, is very foolish. I should have stayed by my mother. And and all I kept doing was uh, calling her up and saying, please come, please come. I need you. I need you. And, of course, my mother's still in the throes of uh, sorrow and not herself. And uh, But she would come. So that's the way it was in Brooklyn. Uh, We moved from 82nd Street and Bay Ridge and 3rd Avenue down to 40th Street when I was expecting Stephen. They said, oh, no, you can't have two babies in this building. Well, I was on the <laughs> fourth floor walk-up. I mean, so how could I have done it anyway? Well, anyway, we moved to uh, a bigger apartment, but we were only there 
two years, uh, uh, four years in all in Brooklyn. And then my mother-in-law came in to visit, and she took one look at me, and she said, why don't you come to the country? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so she offered me to move in with her. My father-in-law had died at 49. Hmm. And, um, yeah, yeah, he had uh, his um, uh, heart valves gave way. Mm. and they didn't replace heart valves back then. Mm-hmm. So he died of that, and uh, and she was a widow uh, at a very young age. She was like 48, I guess. And um, she had the two sons, Charlie and uh, and John. So, so that was the country, you say, that was Sound... Sound Beach. Sound Beach. Yeah, lo- the, Sound in other words, the Long Island Sound. Right. Sound Beach. Oh, okay, Sound Beach. And so mm-hmm. you and Charlie and the three kids moved out there eventually. Yeah. And you yeah. stayed out there for how long? 52 and a half years oh, so so after we bought our own home. Okay. Yeah, Okay. We, uh, that was 1960, and I had just had Eileen, my little angel, and mm. uh, and she's still my angel today, mm. and she's my northern angel. I, I when I go up to Long Island, I stay with her, uh-huh. and of course my southern angel is my Diane. She <laughs> calls me every day and and makes sure that I'm sane and I'm I'm, I'm busy and because I lived in Vero Beach, you know, when I first came down right. here. So what brought and you two down here? Tell me about the move to Vero Beach. My hus- my husband's illness. Mm-hmm. Um, he had Parkinson's, and I knew he wasn't going to get any better. And I reached a point where uh, I needed to put him in a nursing home. He was dying. He was in the last stages of Parkinson's. And When was and he Diane, diagnosed with that? Oh, back in uh, 2004. So you moved down here for him, for, for better well, care? Uh, I mean, to Vero. To Vero. Yeah. Uh, we had a summer place. Bought the place uh, back in 1995. And my mother-in-law lived in the same mobile home complex. Mm-hmm. And that's where we moved there, to be near my mother-in-law. But my mother-in-law was 87. And she died that August before we actually came oh. there to live. And, uh, yeah, so. So you worked up too. until 62? I did. Well, I didn't work at the Federal Reserve Bank. No, right. you see, back then, you couldn't work once once you got pregnant and started to show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were automatic. It was automatic that you didn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. That's the way it was for women. <laughs> and uh, so when I was seven months pregnant, uh, I left the Federal Reserve Bank after seven years. Mm-hmm. I had started there right from high school when I was 18. And after seven years, uh, I moved. I don't know. I'm lost here. You were working at the Federal Reserve, and then you got pregnant, so you had to stop working. When did you go back to work? I stopped working for 20 years. So it was up to Charlie to be the breadwinner. So, uh, you know, and and then we had moved to Long Island in 1960, Mm -hmm. and for 20 years, he he got into the excavating business. He bought a backhoe, Mm -hmm. and he learned how to use it, and then he he formed his own business. And it was hard for Charlie to work for somebody because he was a Leo, and he, Mm -hmm. you know, he he had to be his own boss. You know, he was a very strong personality, mm-hmm. and um, and he did very well at it, and he loved it. You know, mm-hmm. so um, and even all my kids, Eileen and Diane and Charlie and Stephen, worked for him, mm-hmm. and they loved doing it. You know, because mm-hmm. the girls loved making the money that he paid them. You know, mm-hmm. it was better than babysitting. You <laughs> oh, know, back. Sure. but I went back to work in 1977. I was out of work for 20 years. I really didn't have any skills to go back to work, so I took a work as a cleaner and uh, in Stony Brook University. Mm-hmm. And, and then I uh, became, believe it or not, janitor was a step up from a cleaner. So I, mm-hmm. I got the janitor position after a while. Mm-hmm. And it was very hard to come by because there were so many people ahead of you in, in that New York system uh, working for the state. Mm-hmm. And then I took a test and I passed it by the skin of my teeth and I became a supervisor in housekeeping in university hospital. Mm-hmm. We, we had the university and we had the hospital connected, a teaching hospital on Long Island. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I stayed for uh, eight years in the hospital. Mm-hmm. That wasn't easy for me because um, I had to force people around. I had to fire people. I had to write them up and things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and the bosses would on my, be on my back all the time to do that. We can't fire this person unless we have the paperwork on them. Mary, come on, you know, get with it. So if I had to do something like that, the person had to be really bad for me to um, put them out of a job. That's the way I looked at it. And so how old was Charlie when he was diagnosed with Parkinson's? 2003. Uh, okay, so it was... You moved to Vero in 2005, you said, approximately? Uh, oh, oh, I see what you're saying, full-time. Yeah, yeah full-time. Full time. Yeah, yeah, you got it. 
You got it right. Full time. I don't know it right, but you do. Okay. <laughs> you moved to Vero <laughs> in about 2005, primarily to... He had a stroke in 2003. That I remember very okay. oh, clearly, because he wound up in St. Charles Hospital in Port Jefferson, uh-huh. and um, then he was in uh, rehab for a while there after the stroke. But he, previous to that, he had had colon cancer, uh-huh. and uh, huh. he had the operation, and he had a, uh, he had a uh, colostomy. Uh-huh. Uh, permanent, permanent colostomy, uh-huh. and um, which proved to be very good after a while because when I had to take care of him when he got dementia, uh-huh. it was made things easier for me. You know uh-huh. what I'm saying? Huh. Uh, yeah, sure, sure, uh, sure. Uh-huh. uh-huh. So, uh, you know, uh, when he didn't know what was going on totally, you know, but, but he went from one stage to the other, and I got involved in the Parkinson's Alzheimer's Association uh-huh. in Vero Beach, uh-huh. and that's where I found my first help. I see. Um, yeah, the help was there. Uh, they took him one day a week for three hours, and uh-huh. which which freed me up uh-huh. to be able to get up and go grocery shopping or do whatever it is I had to do, uh-huh. and um, and that was a blessing, you know. Uh-huh. And then I got him in, installed in a, another uh, senior place where they took took him for three three hours, and um, I would bring him there. It was right nearby, so it wasn't a hardship. And then they would they would bring him home by minibus. And and he liked that, that, you know, it was good for him, mm-hmm. you know, that inter, intermingling with people. And solely, he, he, you know, he just kind of lost contact with people. And, and then I had people coming to the house to take care of him. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you learn as you go. Mm-hmm. And, that, and, and that's the type of thing caregiving is, a learning process. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't know any of these things or where you can get help. You feel like, oh, my goodness, God, in the beginning, you're all alone with this, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, every, the kids are working. Nobody in the family can really help you because they don't have the time. they got to fend for themselves, right? And, mm-hmm. and I never expected it of my kids, you know. Mm-hmm. I really didn't. Mm-hmm. So I knew it was up to me to do this, you know. Mm-hmm. And I found ways, you know, to find help for myself so that I didn't go out of my mind. And it worked. It mm-hmm. worked. And then finally, you know, the doctor, I took, when I got his doctor, I also made sure that it was my doctor. So we both had the same doctor in Vero. Mm-hmm. And so she knew what was going on in my life. If I had two different doctors, they wouldn't know what I was going through. Mm-hmm. So I needed for her to know that. So Dr. Dean, God bless her, she says to me, uh, I don't know, he had dehydration or something. He had to go in the hospital. And she said, Mary, this is your moment. This is it. You have an opportunity now to put him in a nursing home because he can go from the hospital to a nursing home. And I, you know, hesitated. You know, when you have something like this to do for so many years, eight years, mm-hmm. you're so used to holding on and, mm-hmm. and, and doing it mm-hmm. that I needed her because she was a strong person and I needed her input. And because of Dr. Dean, I said, okay. So there was a nursing home up uh, in Vero Beach, Consulate it was called, and she ran it. She was in charge of it. And I could have put him in there, but Diane said to me, Mom, why don't you bring him down here? Because they also had a consulate down here on Davis Road and uh, Forest Hill Boulevard. And she says, why don't you bring him, why don't you come here? She said, this way I can help you. Mm Mm-hmm. Did you so feel guilty what, about that? No, that? I felt relieved. Oh, okay. Good. I felt he was he was my relief. Uh-huh. You know, uh, when you're desperate for relief, you grab it. And uh-huh. I said, okay. Uh-huh. So uh, I got someone to stay in my place, and they paid me rent. It was one of the, the women who actually who helped me with Charlie. She was a nurse's aide. And um, I loved this woman, and Charlie loved her. Mm-hmm. And even though he had dementia and he was out of it, she could make him laugh. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I got to a point with her that uh, I would leave my door unlocked and she would let herself in in the morning and so and she would let me sleep. She'd come mm-hmm. in so quiet I wouldn't mm-hmm. hear her. Mm-hmm. And I had taken the bed in the next in the other bedroom mm-hmm. and in the meanwhile. And uh, so she'd walk past my bedroom and never wake me and she'd get him out of bed, get him into the shower, clean him up, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and then when she was all done, they'd stop by my door and she'd say, Say, Mary... Hey, Mary. She was just so perfect. Sounds and, like you were uh, lucky to, to find her. I was. Mm-hmm. I was very lucky. It's a real yeah. group effort, isn't it? It C- is. Caring for because, someone. Yes. Oh, my God. I had nurses. I had AIDS. I had different types of uh, help. But, you know, I learned that the system is such that if you didn't have a nurse in charge, you couldn't get the aid. And mm-hmm. the nurse would say, well, she needs the aid. Mm-hmm. You know, and she would write write it up. Everything was paperwork. 
there's people that are inundated with paperwork. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, and then and, and my aide would go from house to house, and and um, she had different types of patients that she had to do different things for, and mm-hmm. and she'd call me and say if she's going to be late or something like that. You know what? What I had gone through, I, I look back on my life, and what I had gone through with different stages in my life, and had made me stronger. Mm-hmm. And I, I always said, you know, after I moved to the country and I got my own little house on in Miller Place on Tyler Avenue, I, I was talking to somebody in the in the deli down the corner from me, and, and we agreed that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's one thing that I really truly believe in, that, you know, I'm here today and I have an attitude the way I do because all the different phases of anguish and and difficulty, I got through it and I learned from it and I can sympathize uh, with anybody that's in those shoes. Do you feel differently about yourself now from how you felt when you were younger? Uh, oh, yeah. And I mean, I, know. I realize um, there's so many things I would have done differently, you know, had I not been the type of person I was, you know. Uh, I've learned so much that it's hard to know how much I've learned. You mm-hmm. know, I've got so much in my head. And this is why older people, let me tell you something, can't remember things right away because we can't delete anything. Think mm-hmm. about that. Hmm. On a computer, you can delete when you're overloaded you can delete it but your brain catches it and holds onto it and so naturally when someone asks you a question you know you're going to take a minute to answer because it doesn't come around that quick so it's not because you're forgetful and uh, you don't know what they're talking about it's that you got to wait for it to come so i've learned i've learned that and you're 82 now yeah and what do you want people to know about being 82 well uh, I feel like I, I just visited my aunt who turned 100 when I was up on Long Island uh, these last few weeks. And I, my aunt, who was married to my uncle, who was my godfather, she wasn't a Tursolino. She married into the family, but she's last, the last of all of them. They're all gone. And the seven brothers, the two sisters, uh, so I got together with my cousins uh, who are all octogenarians like me, and uh, after speaking with one of them, uh, Anne, who, who lived in Iceland all her life, she says, we have to make it a point to get together. We can't just keep meeting at funerals, mm-hmm. you know, and I said, you're right, Anne, and I said, she said, this is a good thing that you, you're getting us together for, Aunt Ruth's. 100th birthday and we were going to take her out to lunch all right so i called dennis who lives in he lives in smithtown and his wife and he was agreeable and uh, ann and rod who lives in islip and natty and dell who live in sound beach and uh and i said we got to get together and take ruth out to lunch you know because how much longer is she going to live so that was our plan we had arranged it well unbeknownst to us Aunt Ruth's hip gave way. Aunt Ruth falls and winds up in Good Sam, Good Sam Hospital in Long Island. So that put a crunch in <laughs> our lunch plans. But I said, you know what? So to Aunt, you know, you're right. Let's go to lunch anyway. You pick the, we'll let you pick the restaurant, right? And she said, oh, well, okay. You know, and I'm thinking she's going to pick a nice restaurant on the Peconic or uh, the South Shore. And so she picks this little dinky uh, restaurant. They have good food, though, she said. And it's across the way from the ferry that takes you to Fire Island on Long Island. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a little dinky, tiny little, you know, um, Mm-hmm. restaurant. The people mm-hmm. were lovely. Mm-hmm. You know, they, it was called the Chowder Bar. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, they did have good food. Of course, we, we took pictures, you know, the waitress took a picture of it, all of us together, and now it's on Facebook. You know, she's, mm-hmm. uh, my cousin says, I'll email this to you, Mary. You know, she's, and we got to do this again. Next time you're up, we'll get together. Mm-hmm. So I think I started something good. So they were all excited about it. Mm-hmm. However, uh, my daughter Eileen said to me the following Friday, she said, I have off. She said, would you like to go see Aunt Ruth in rehab? And I said, yes. Mm -hmm. So Eileen and I went over to see her. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, she's a whippersnapper. She just turned uh, 100 yesterday. Mm -hmm. But we saw her last Friday. And I had everybody sign the card. It had a big 100 on the card in the front. I had everybody at the restaurant sign the card, and I handed it to her. And she says, what I've got to tell you guys is that you have to keep on going. She said, you have to always have purpose. You have to keep busy. You have to have just keep yourself involved, and that's the secret. Give up all the things that are going to 
um, ruin your body, you know, at 50. And um, do it then, because mm-hmm. if you don't do it then, it's going to be too late. Mm-hmm. Don't sit out in the sun and get uh, melanoma. Don't drink too much. Don't smoke too much. But don't smoke at all. I can remember going to a movie as a kid, and the person next to me lit up, right next right to me. Right there in the theater. That's the way it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just taken for granted that, you know, you smoked when you when you drank, you went to a bar, you, I mean, the whole bar was full of smoke. Mm-hmm. So if you didn't smoke, you were inhaling smoke. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. But those were the, t- that's what the times, the, mm-hmm. the times dictated that, mm-hmm. you know. Mary, you've always been really active. I think that's one of the keys to your success. What is your typical day like now? And what things are the most important to you now and why? And, and why? What keeps me going mm-hmm. is my Olivia uh, and, and doing for Diane because whenever she needs me, and I know she really needs me, you know, to help uh, Eric so that Eric can proceed with what he's doing, which is not easy. And, and so let's remind yeah. the listeners that Diane is your daughter who lives here in West Palm Beach where you live, and, oh, and Olivia yes. is your granddaughter. My granddaughter. And, and how old is she now, Olivia? Six, six and, and a half. Six and a half, So yeah. you're really active and in their lives. See, what you have to always feel is that you need to be needed. And if you're not needed anywhere, you can really get lost. I mean, I live in a building where I look at faces that are lost, and I know the ones that are lost. Mm-hmm. And, and I say, oh, I can't let myself get that way. And I'm fighting that, you see. Mm-hmm. I'm fighting that because I live here. But everybody has a different, they come from different places. They come from different walks of life. And, uh, you know, and I realize that everybody has their story, mm-hmm. regardless, mm-hmm. you know, how they look right now. And I have people here that are in the 90s. Uh, you know, is the building and, a retirement home that you're living in now? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'd be 62 or, 62 or older. Okay. Here. I try to put my smile on my face to everybody because I realize everybody's walking around with something, something heavy on their shoulders. And when Charlie died, I didn't feel grief right away. I felt relief. Mm-hmm. And, and that's an honest answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can tell you is that I felt a great relief lifted from my shoulders when God took him because I said, thank you. I felt the relief because I knew it was inevitable that he had to die. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was not going to get better. And he died you know. two years ago? Two and a half years. Two. It'll be three years in mm-hmm. October, October 22nd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he died peacefully, you know, mm-hmm. and... Uh, I, they took me into a room and they said, you know, Charlie's at the point now where he can't swallow anymore. Uh, do you want us to put a tube in him? And I said, no, I do not. I said, to prolong his life that he has no no life, really, mm-hmm. would be a real sin. Mm-hmm. And, and he had signed papers or uh, years before that saying that, no, we don't want artificial respiration. So it was a relief for you. Probably a relief for him, too, oh, in, a, in a way. Of course. Mm-hmm. I don't know what was going on in his mind. Yeah, who sure. Could know? Who, who could know what was sure. going on? I mean, he opened his eyes, you know, every day, you know, looked at you, but you didn't know what was going on in his mind. I used to talk to him. He was still uh, your I, blonde Adonis, right? Yeah, yeah. Charlie was with me the night that my brother died. We went to the movies out in uh, Long Island, uh, a, a drive-in, and we were out in Comac, Long Island. And when the movie was over... He says, well, what do you want to do? We're halfway out, halfway in. Do you want to go back to Brooklyn or you want to go back to Sound Beach? I said, well, Mrs. Farrick is out there. I can go out and stay with her. And so we decided to go to Sound Beach, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, that night at 3 o'clock in the morning, we came upon an accident on the road, and um, and we saw a fire department and police cars there and everything. And I looked up the street, and I said, oh, an accident. I said, oh, I'm so glad I don't know anybody in the convertible. And little did I know that it was my brother was under it. Mm. And so I can cry it's right hard, now thinking about it's, it. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. My brother Jack, who was up in Boyle's Bar up in town, heard about it. Mm-hmm. And he came running mm-hmm. from there, which is a good half-mile run mm-hmm. down. And mm-hmm. he's trying to lift the car. Till mm. that morning... We had to drive into Brooklyn, and I had to tell my mother. I walked in the house, and and my father said, where's Sonny? And I said, he's gone with that. And and Charlie was with me, stayed with me, and and, and he went out into the airy way, which we had called the front yard Mm in the house, and he he told my father. And and I went into the kitchen, and my mother's standing at 8 o'clock in the morning ironing, and mm-hmm. um, she's smiling, and she's hi, Mary. You know, mm-hmm. so good to see. She was so happy. Mm-hmm. I turned around and walked into the living room, and I couldn't tell her. Mm-hmm. How can I be the one to break her heart? Mm-hmm. How can I do this? Charlie came back in, and they said, "Did you tell her?" I said, "I can't." 
well, you got to tell her. I said, I have to tell her. I had to break her home. And I went in, and I told her, and of course she collapsed. And then there on, you know, it was just hell. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm so sorry I brought this up. Oh, no, never, it's okay. It's okay. It was such a big part of, of my course. life that today I can think about it and be there. Absolutely. And you see, that's one of the reasons why I married Charlie, because he was with me, and he understood what I went through. You understand? Mm-hmm. He understood. He was with me. He saw what happened. He was. And how could you explain that to anybody else mm-hmm. and have them really mm-hmm. feel what you are feeling? But then, you know, when he came back from, from Korea, uh, I was so glad to see him. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how I would feel about him mm-hmm. after being separated for two years because mm-hmm. out of sight, out of mind. And I, 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 just, I think I love him. I don't know. <laughs> but when he came back, I knew. Mm-hmm. Instantly, instantly. Let's let's turn that into a different direction. If you could mm-hmm. go back to any age, what age would it be, and why? Well, I think I, sh- I, 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 I would make different changes in my life, and I would also probably give myself a chance to have met other, other men. Mm-hmm. But back then, if you were 25 and you weren't married, you were an old maid. So that was another peer pressure thing that, mm-hmm. you know, hung all over everybody's heads. Mm-hmm. And here, my friends were having babies already, you know, and... Uh, I was only twenty. I was twenty three and almost married, you know. So, mm-hmm. so it was it was what you did back then, you know. I mean, it was you got married. It was you know, and then you had babies and you became a mother, and that was your that was your life. And you didn't think about careers. The only careers available were nurses, teachers, or third secretary. Thing was there. there you go. Yeah, you, yeah. yeah, but that wasn't really that a wasn't career. a career, right? Yeah, that was mm-hmm. a job. Mm-hmm. But, but nursing and teaching were the two careers that women went into. To be a nurse, you went to a hospital mm-hmm. and learned how to be a nurse, you know, mm-hmm. and you, everybody wore a cap. Mm-hmm. Today, you don't see any nurses with caps on. <laughs> I haven't seen one know? of those in a while, except in the movies. <laughs> in Sometimes. The movies because, in period. But everybody, movie, the they, and not only wore a cap, they wore the blue cape. And I saw this. This is what was present. Uh-huh. That's why in the movies you see that, because that's what was. Mm-hmm. What would you say to younger people in terms of how they should prepare for older age? How how do you prepare um, for it? Can you? you? You can. You have to live it, honey. You have to live it and be healthy. Stay healthy. That's uh-huh. the only two things I could tell you. Uh-huh. And through your own life experience, which everybody has a different uh, outlook on life, they they're coming coming from where they came from, how much they had growing up. Uh, a lot of kids today have a lot. I mean, all little girls are told they're princesses. <laughs> and my mother bought our gifts in a thrift shop, and I was so grateful. She bought me a little wicker doll carriage and, mm-hmm. I, and, a, and, a, and a doll, and, mm-hmm. and I just loved those two things. And, well, they were mother things, you know, mm-hmm. to learn to be a mother. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and when my girlfriend and I in the building, Pat McLernan and I got together, we played mother. And it was our imaginations took over. You know, a lot of our child rearing in those days was imagination. And I think we got it from the radio, hmm. listening to the radio. We mm-hmm. used our imaginations, and that was a very good thing. When visual aids started coming, which I call a television, a visual <laughs> aid, you know, uh, came into being, we no longer thought about things. Things were thought out for us. And I and I said, I'm so glad I was brought up in the age I was brought up because we experienced things as they were invented, as they came along into our life. I mean, I experienced Elvis. Mm-hmm. Before that, we had Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra, and we didn't have Elvis. And when Elvis... And then we finally got a television. When I saw him in black and white on television, you know, with the snow, we, we didn't have very clear pictures. When I saw him, I was like mesmerized, you know, how he could move his body like that. It was just really unbelievable, mm-hmm. you know. So he was a big change, mm-hmm. you know, in the music industry. Mm-hmm. You've, you know? lived through so, you've lived through so much. It's really incredible. That's why, you know, anybody that I talk to in my age group, they agree that I am so glad I learned and, and I appreciated as I learned, as I went. I brought my mother her first washing machine. Previous to that, she would, she soaked everything in the, in the bathtub and hung the wet sheets to the ta- to the line, sat on a windowsill, and she hung a line from the windowsill to the uh, telephone pole out in the backyard, like a hundred feet. 
and she hung everything out on and brought it in in the winter, stiff as a board because it was frozen. <laughs> and then she had to hang it over radiators because we had radiators, you know, uh-huh. uh, and uh, to dry them. Uh-huh. I can remember, though, when the first A&P came around the corner on Wycliffe Street, and uh, I said, everything under one roof? Uh-huh. That's incredible. I couldn't wait to go see the A&P. Everything under one roof. I, I mean, that was a big revelation to me. Okay, I want to ask you a couple more questions, and then we'll go. How do you okay. how do you define a good life or a successful life? How do you define that? A successful life is um, not with a whole lot of stuff. In fact, when I see people with a whole lot of stuff, when I look across the intercoastal waterways and I see all those people over there, I actually feel sorry for them because they have to have security. Uh, around the clock to uh, so people won't break in and and, and take their stuff. And I, I feel happiness, true happiness, is something you feel within. And you can be, in, be worth millions of dollars and still not be happy. And you do find your, your own true happiness. And, and that lies in being content and satisfied and, um, and finding that. It's uh, finding your own peace within yourself. And what would you like your uh, grandchildren and children to remember about you? That I loved them, that I cared about them, that I openly showed them, which is very important. Uh, Don't keep it in. Say it out loud, because if you don't, they're not going to have anything to remember you by. That's lovely. Is there anything else that you would like to add that I didn't ask or talk about with you? Any takeaways for our audience? What do you want people to remember about when you're in your 80s? What's still great about life? Just getting up in the morning and be able to do for yourself. Mm-hmm. I think once that's taken away from you, your independence, I think that's when, when you have a breakdown of feeling down about yourself. You know, my greatest satisfaction is helping people and, and having them feel good about themselves. And then I feel good about myself because I did that. Uh-huh. You're still uh, driving, right? Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Of course. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna be driving well into your nineties. I would hope so. Yeah. Nobody's I'm gonna take those keys away from you. As long as I phys- I'm physically uh, able, I will. Good and I you. have a two thousand four Honda Accord that is in good condition, and I only have forty thousand miles on it. That is going to be my last car. <laughs> <laughs> my last vehicle. <laughs> That's all you'll need. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted. Mary. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about all this and bringing up all these emotions in me. Oh, it's wonderful. I really appreciate you being so open with me and sharing your stories. This is wonderful to talk about. I hope I made some sense of it. I don't know. Mary, you're you're a treasure. You're a treasure. (laughs) That means a lot to me. Thank Thank you for thank you for being on the show. Take care. You certainly Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. I'd love to hear what you thought of today's program. You can email me at jana at agewise.com. That's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says. You can also find me online at agewise.com and listen to the podcast on Stitcher or iTunes or SoundCloud and download any episode at these locations for free. I'm Jana Panarias. See you next time. Until then, age well. Age wise.